0: Last week's program, we mentioned the passing of a couple of investigators uh, who I have a great deal of respect for, John Judge and Michael Rupert. And uh, luckily for us, we have someone who knew them both quite well to talk about them, and I think we should do a little bit of that. Uh, joining us from Los Angeles is Jim Eugenio. Welcome back to the show, Jim.
1: Good evening, Doug.
0: Now, uh, you worked with John, I think, pretty extensively on the, what, Coalition Political Assassinations, COPA?
1: Yes, I did. In fact, um, John and I worked together at the beginning of the formation of that organization. Um, there were some meetings in the Washington area, and then uh, we got that off the ground. And John was essentially its point person for a number of years. And John organized and ran several of the COPA conferences in Washington that took place from, I think, about, if I remember correctly, 1993 to 1998. Copa then kind of formally disbanded after that, but John continued to uh, go ahead and organize these conferences, not just in Washington, but he did things on the Robert Kennedy case in L.A. He did things on the King case in Memphis, and he organized even, I believe, a, a kind of gathering in New York on the murder of Malcolm X. So he's very, very active in trying to uh, bring these things into uh, the public conscience. Okay. Prior to this, uh, John, John had done a lot of research uh, with the late May Brussels out in the Carmel area, Santa Cruz area. And he and, and, and she had worked together a lot. By the time I met John, which I think was 1991, he really wasn't a researcher anymore. He had done all of his work. Uh, him and May Brussels done a lot of work on those cases, and uh, and he had basically gotten into the activism phase. Okay, but and also I think another thing that sh- we should mention is that he ended up working with Cynthia McKinney when yes. Cynthia was a Congresswoman, and he helped draft the um, articles of impeachment against uh, President Bush. Okay, and he also organized a. Um, a conference on nine eleven and I should precede that by saying John was also instrumental in uh, getting uh the commission on nine eleven run running because he worked with a lot of the families um you know uh, who were very outraged at what had happened you know to the horrible uh you know that horrible tragedy i mean it's it's maybe' it's, some people don't recall but uh Nobody was really pushing for any official investigation uh, when 9-11 happened, and then when, except for these families of these thousands of people who, were, who died. Right. You know, and finally, um, you know, there had to be something appointed, and I'm sure you remember who um, they wanted to be the first commissioner of that panel.
0: Henry Kissinger, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: Henry Kissinger.
0: There's a guy to get to the bottom of things. Well,
1: every, everybody and their mother understood that that was, in itself, was, was outrageous, okay? And so uh, Kissinger was dropped, you know, and, uh, and, and they got a joint commissioner, uh, Hamilton and Keene, okay, to run it, okay? Well, John helped get that off the ground, and then uh, later on, with Cynthia McKinney's help, he arranges conference to critique the uh, the nine eleven commission report. All right, and uh, you know, so John was really uh, for a, a really till his dying day was you know very active in trying to bring these important issues, yeah. you know, to the public's consciousness, one way or the other.
0: Did Rupert have something to do with that conference as well?
1: Yeah, one of the uh, people that John Judge invited to speak at the Cynthia McKinney conference uh, was Mike Rupert, all right? Mike was, at, before this, had made a name for himself. First of all, he tried to bring some facts about the Robert Kennedy case to the LA Police Commission, but then he really kind of uh, made a name for himself by confronting CIA Director John Deutsch in Los Angeles, on CIA drug running, because you recall, the Gary Webb series had really kind of brought that into the limelight.
0: Absolutely. Right?
1: And so um, John Deutsch, you know, went to this conference, I think, in somewhere in, in South Central L.A. Mike was there, and Mike said, I have prime knowledge that the CIA was running drugs into Los Angeles, because I worked on the police force, all right? so then Mike created something called From the Wilderness, which was an online journal. Uh, and then when 9-11 happened, uh, Mike was just kind of, you know, like a lot of people, he couldn't believe, you know, the government story on this. And I remember talking to him about this, and he said, Jim, the interceptor planes should never have been as late as they were. There must have been some underlying reason. The second plane should have never hit the tower without the interceptor plane being there, all right? And so he decided to write a book, all right? And he wrote, I believe, one of the better books on the whole 9-11 case, which is called Crossing the Rubicon. It's long. It's over 600 pages long. And um, he put some things in there that are not really germane to the topic, you know, but if you can allow for that – I believe it's one of the very best books on the whole 9-11 case. See, he told me and he told other people he was going to avoid the physical evidence in 9-11. He was going to simply concentrate on all the anomalies that happened that day yeah. and are just so hard to swallow. Like, for, for example, I'm sure you're aware of this. You're you're aware of the the whole stock market manipulation on the American Airlines stock?
0: Yeah, Mr. McMillan and I traveled to down well, across town here when he gave a talk and of course we, we had him on the show three times and he he had a fascinating talk about that issue of the stock market manipulations and a lot of things about Wall Street and the drug war a lot of things that really tied together in a most provocative way.
1: Mhm, right. So he he was he was he was very interested in following some kind of criminal line in, in, in the whole 9-11 thing. And that's what his book is really about. Okay? And his book does not blame President Bush. He doesn't point the finger at President Bush. Okay? Uh, his chief suspect is Dick Cheney, and his second chief suspect is Rumsfeld. Okay, that that's who he's going after in that book. And like I said, you know, a lot of the books on the 9/11 case, you know, and because the, the, a lot of the people in the 9/11 thing have gone, I believe, kind of haywire. I don't know if you've kept up with some of the things that's been going on there, you know. But it's, you know, the no planes thing, right. and The giant hologram thing, and Judy Wood and space beam weapons. i, I, I do not aware of and all I, this
0: I, stuff. I, I thankfully am not.
1: <laughs> okay. All right, but it's kind of really gone haywire. See, and Mike was determined, okay, not to go down that path. So his book is sort of like what a detective would do if he was examining the internal ramifications of how it happened, okay, how it happened. And he puts together a string of acts which he believes are very suspicious, okay, you know, and, and then he culminates it, you know, with the fact that they were actually many as five war games going on that morning he can certify three and he he puts the case out but they're indisputably three but there may have been as many as five and this is what he says caused the confusion about the interceptor planes because they weren't sure whether it was real or whether it was a war game right okay you know and so that's how he begins the book and it's a real gripping opening, and it gets it gets just, it's just as good all the way to the end, all right? Mike was a very—you said you saw him speak a few times?
0: Yeah, we had him on the show several times, Jim.
1: Well, M- Mike was a very articulate guy, you know, and he was determined that he would never, you know, say anything that he couldn't back up with at least some evidence. Right. So he was a very kind of respectable, alternative journalist. This is why— I think 16 people in Congress subscribed to his journal from, you know, from the wilderness. You know, you know, like Kucinich and right. Cynthia McKinney and, right. and several other people.
0: He struck me as a guy that had done, done his homework.
1: He was a very good journalist.
0: Well, I would, a, a, in closing, I would just summarize their work. I mean, they certainly were out, these were two men operating in, you know, what are the, uh, what would you describe it, the... Uh, the, the deepest area of deep politics, and, of course, uh, I think both have been criticized, but uh, w- would you say that, in, in your opinion, their work really holds up?
1: Yeah, I was, you know, I didn't agree with everything both the guys said, but by by and large, you know, the general, you know, uh, you know the general, you know, method that they were using, that is going for things that the mainstream media would never pick up, and only using things that they could had some evidence for, and trying to show that how America had gone so awry, that all is, is very, very credible. Very credible. And, you know, and I, I really believe, you know, the, the world's a little bit poorer by the fact that we don't have those two guys around anymore. They made some very significant contributions to our understanding of modern America
0: yeah I, I think they both will surely be missed uh, at that conference at Duquesne University. Um, it was just nice at one there was just a moment I can recall um, when a speaker was talking about something, and I, I just turned back, John sitting behind me and said, "You think that's true?" And he would look at me and says, "Yeah." He just added a little more certainty to what the guy was saying that, that John John thought that was legitimate, and I wish we'd, I wish we'd had him on.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they were. Bun. I'll tell you this: I, I had personal relationships with both of those guys, and, and in addition to being good researchers, you know, they were they were they were both gentlemen, you know, uh, very well mannered, humorous, nice guys. I enjoyed being around both of them.
0: Absolutely, I, they, uh, they they will be missed. We speak with educator and author James Eugenio, Jim, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and I hope that we'll uh, bring you back on sometime soon. I'm sorry it's under this, um, this sad occasion, but I, I want to I suitably honor these guys' memory uh, by chatting.
1: Okay, my pleasure, Doug.
0: right, the mistreatment of animals is not a happy subject, but um, unfortunately, there's been several stories that compel us to talk a bit about it. And no, we don't have any follow-up on the jackass in Texas that spent $350,000 at an auction to buy the right to hunt an endangered African black rhino. Except to note that he has gone before the media to say that, you know, his life has been threatened on account of this. Mr. McMillan's comment would be, yeah, by the way, so's the rhino. Let's just say Radio Parallax remains unconvinced that $350,000 given to the same people in Namibia that are going to let the rhino be killed is going to help the rhino population. We suspect it will probably do a lot of good for the Swiss bank accounts of some game wardens. But that's just a guess. Also, want to note in a piece to the B by Camilla Fox, who's the founder and executive director of Project Coyote, that uh, last uh, Valentine's Day, while many of us might have been enjoying romantic dinners and exchanging words of love, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Law Enforcement Division was on red alert for a warden who'd been shot by a coyote contest hunter in El Dorado County. Noted Camilla Fox, most people are shocked to learn that it is legal to kill wildlife as part of a tournament for prizes, and recreational fun. They're even more shocked to learn that thousands of such contests take place each year in the U.S., killing tens of thousands of wild animals. Evidently, Project Coyote has petitioned our fish and game people here in California, and President Michael Sutton stated that I've been concerned about these killing contests for some time. They seem inconsistent, both with ethical standards of hunting and our current understanding of the important role predators play in ecosystems. Well, we're glad they're learning about that in Department of Fish and Game in the wake of things like shooting the mountain lion cubs in San Mateo County last year we talked about. And what about Florida wildlife officials? Uh, There they've killed at least seven black bears since a a woman was dragged out of her garage and mauled by a 250-pound animal last week. Evidently, the woman had stepped out of her uh, car to get her children when a bear that was rooting through her trash charged on her and closed its jaw on her head. She managed to get away but did require 30 staples in her scalp. Uh, the officials said that black bears are becoming increasingly aggressive in their interactions with humans, and so I guess that's why they went out and shot seven of them. As far as we can see, their logic was that, well... The bears that we killed may not have been guilty of anything. This will certainly serve as an example to other bears. And uh, from Africa, we have the ongoing tragedy of uh, what the ivory trade is doing to the elephant population. Poachers are now slaughtering up to 35,000 of the estimated 500,000 African elephants every year for their tusks. Turns out that a single male elephant's two tusks can weigh more than 250 pounds And since a pound of ivory can fetch as much as $1,500 in the black market, it's a problem. Why is ivory so valuable? Well, all across Asia, but particularly in China, ivory figurines are given as traditional gifts, and ivory chopsticks, hair ornaments, and jewelry are highly prized luxuries. Said Grace Gabriel of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, China regards ivory as a cultural heritage, and they are not going to ban it. It's noted that many Chinese consumers don't realize that elephants must be killed for their ivory. In one survey, more than two-thirds of Chinese respondents said they thought tusks grew back, like fingernails. Tom Milliken of the Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network says that with more disposable income in mainland China, many people are flaunting their wealth, and ivory is seen as a luxury product that confers status. And we certainly want to commend the efforts of people who are trying to stop this, uh, profile in New Scientist magazine about Andrea Turcalo, biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society based in the Central African Republic. Well, she had to return to the U.S. recently because of some violence in the area. She noted, sadly, that they have lost 60% of the forest elephants in the Congo Basin to poaching during the first decade of this century, and at that rate, they could be extinct within 10 years. Asked who's to blame for poaching... Tercalos said that nowadays poaching is often run by international syndicates or by outsiders. Refugees who have immigrated into our area from the savannah to the north. It appears to be very well organized. She notes that we need a lot of intelligence on who these groups are and where the ivory is going. Asked are other countries involved, she said, well, we think so. The Chinese have come into Central Africa in a big way for mineral extraction and logging. Wherever they go, we see elephant numbers decline. Nowadays, traffickers around the globe can go online and find out where these elephants live. Our research group recently put up a photo of a beautiful old male with a huge tusks on its website. Immediately, we saw an extraordinarily high number of page hits from China and the Far East. Fuck. I guess some of this can be attributed to the law of unintended consequences. China has been economically backward for generations. Now that they're coming into a little bit of money, well, that's having some bad consequences. Some of them seem to be right here in California. We may be able to bring you an expert on the poaching of abalone sometime in the months to come, but uh, this is just an absolutely awful problem. A generation ago, you could get abalone in restaurants. And, well, you still can in some locations for a very high price if you can get abalone that were raised on farms because it is illegal to sell harvested wild abalone in California. It is, however, legal for residents to dive for abalone for private consumption. Every year, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife issues 30,000 abalone harvest cards to divers. Each cardholder is illegally allowed to catch 24 of the shellfish each year. However, based on studies in the early 2000s, more than a quarter of a million abalone are poached every year. And sadly, these are clearly going to market in Asia. Turns out one wild abalone can sell for $100 on the black market. But um, the worst part about this is that unlike the old days, when I used to go out to fish for abalone with my dad and grandfather, we respected the size limits on the animals. Juvenile animals were not to be taken. We're really glad to read that last summer, uh, California game wardens arrested 13 suspects from Sacramento and the Bay Area for catching wild abalone for the purpose of selling them. But the piece by Tilly Fong, in the Sacramento Bee, was just the tip of the iceberg. My abalone expert told me that he has been on the scene of poachers being stopped in their tracks with literally pickup trucks filled with abalone, not one of which would have passed muster on the size limit. These animals used to be plentiful and an important part of our ecosystem. And they taste great. We need to get them back. And I think fish and wildlife needs to crack down on some of these jerks, which sell their abalone to networks of black market buyers. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Ellen Cochran, James Di Eugenio, and our old pal, Mr. Wilters. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Please do what you can to make a contribution at fundraiser.kdvs.org.